The ocean's been a provider of nutritious food for people and animals around the planet since animals first appeared in her depths. The ocean has provided so much that societies around the globe were built upon our shores. Even today, most of our megacities, cities that have over 10 million each, are coastal. Now, for centuries, we thought that the ocean's bounty was inexhaustible. But as we've learned in our past episodes, the collapse of the northern cod stocks and various others, and the subsequent close of these fisheries, have told a different story. After hundreds of years of fishing by hook and line, we suddenly became too efficient at catching our prey, and our new fishing methods destroyed habitats where our fish spawned and fed. Now, around that same time, we discovered oil offshore and sent giant boomers, drill rigs, and pumps into our prime fishing areas, dumped or pumped pollutants into our nurseries. There was suddenly nowhere to hide. Until now. Gwei, hello, and welcome to Utan, Our Living Ocean. I'm your host, Brian Martin, and today our topic explores the details of some of those places that fish can go and hide, grow, multiply, and disperse. We'll be talking about setting aside some refuges for these organisms we depend on. We'll discuss the exclusion of certain activities and maintaining others, some of which may surprise you. Yes, today we're talking about marine protected areas, or MPAs, and hopefully we'll debunk some of the confusion that we can and cannot do in MPAs. Today's special guest is Dr. Bruce Hatcher, Chair of Marine Ecosystem Research at Cape Breton University, that's in Cape Breton, Nova Scotia. And Dr. Hatcher will share with us some of his experiences and views on marine protection. Now, I realize that this topic can be highly controversial, but if you have a serious hate on for the marine protected areas, hopefully this episode will change the way you feel about them, especially if you're a small-scale fisher person and not the CEO of a giant exploration company. Now, we had a very long conversation. It is a huge topic, and I did have to skip some questions and edit others out for time. I hope to cover indigenous protected areas, but he noted that it was not his area of expertise. So we'll save that for another time. I'll try to interject now and again to add to the narrative. So together, let's dive in. All right. Well, thank you so much, Bruce, for being here with us today. And I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thanks, Brian. Great. Um, so to get started, in, in our previous episode, we talked about marine spatial planning and we discussed how a very small part of marine spatial planning is about conservation generally speaking, marine protected areas or MPAs. So let's just start briefly with defining as simply as possible what an MPA actually is. A marine protected area, an MPA, is a two-dimensional area of ocean defined on a chart in which some human activities that affect that area are regulated in some way. Right. The implication is that regulation affords a degree of protection, and the assumption is that while the designation is on a nautical chart, it extends to the seabed, and so it actually serves to protect in some way a volume of water and the two associated interfaces, the surface of the ocean uh, where, for example, seabirds feed, and the bottom of the ocean, where 
the detritus of life in the water column above the seabed ends up and is decomposed and recycled. Now, just so you're aware, in today's episode, we are more or less lumping together all the different types of protected or conservation areas that occur in the marine environment, including what are known as other effective area-based conservation measures. And in Canada, these more or less represent DFO's marine protected areas, which are listed under the Oceans Act, a piece of Canadian legislation. There's also DFO's marine refuges, which are listed under the Fisheries Act, as well as Parks Canada's National Marine Conservation Areas and Environment Canada's Marine National Wildlife Areas and Migratory Bird Sanctuaries. Now, all of these are generally chosen for different reasons and also offer varying levels of protection, sometimes even varying levels within their boundaries based on a number of factors. I know, it can be pretty confusing. Now, for the most part, These at minimum restrict bottom trawling, dumping, and mining, as well as oil and gas activities. But that can be an exception for marine refuges. Now on top of all that, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, the IUCN, also classifies the type of protected areas based on activities that can take place, generally representing the differing levels of extraction. But that's a bit more than we have time for today. Now lastly, a new type of protection called Ecologically Significant Areas, or ESAs, are in the beginning phases, so I don't have a whole lot of information on those today, but they are less prohibitive than the Oceans Act MPAs. But unlike MPAs, they are applicable in the intertidal zone, that area between the low tide and the high tide, which in some areas, including the Bay of Fundy, can be a huge, huge area. So essentially we're setting an area aside from certain activities or excluding certain activities. But from a human perspective, what's the point of these marine protected areas? So I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit here, but what could we possibly hope to gain from from this type of exclusion, from excluding people from a certain area? Um, and by that, I mean, wouldn't maximizing the area that we can fish or explore or mine be the most beneficial economically as compared to taking an area away? Well, I would begin by saying it is not always about exclusion. There are many things that happen that humans do in marine protected areas which are inclusionary. For example, the most successful marine protected areas in the context of conservation of ecosystem functions are those in which educational, non-extractive, non-contact educational activities are encouraged and supported. Uh, And this was a fundamental piece of what was until fairly recently the world's largest MPA and most successful, the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park. It was about the education function and getting people engaged with what was largely an over-the-horizon and under-the-surface entity that was incredible importance to people who didn't even really realize it was there. So a big part of the dialogue about MPAs is to try to find ways that protect without excluding. Right. Having said that, there's absolutely no question that a big part of the regulation around protecting an area 
or volume of the ocean is to do things that say you may not dump oily wastes into the ocean here you are not allowed to do that and if you do that you will be punished right you are not allowed to go in and hunt here uh, you are not allowed to go in and build things on the seabed here and if you do if it is one of the minority of marine protected areas in the world that is adequately surveilled and enforced then punishment does occur to those who violate however the vast majority of mpas are articles of faith <laughs> and depend on people doing the right thing by their own volition and that brings us back full circle to the idea of education now as you can imagine policing a huge area of the ocean can be quite challenging and costly whether done by satellite or by boat and in some parks and in some parts of the world there isn't any formal management or even an effort to put in at all to police it these are generally called paper parks because they really only exist on paper people will do the right thing when they understand that the right thing is actually in their best interest that was a great introduction for a few of the uh, the next questions and you also spoke directly to the point of this this um this podcast this episode which is you know about ocean education so when we think about mpas we often think of them from a human perspective, right? But we're obviously not the only organisms that use the ocean. Can you tell me a little bit about the, the protection that would benefit nature, how organisms that actually live in the ocean might benefit from these type of protections? That goes back to the core justification for this idea of taking parts of what is, for the most part, a commons, a part of this earth that is not owned by any one or even one group of human beings but uh is a common so the atmosphere would qualify in the same way is a commons and so it is predicated on the assumption that taking parts of this commons and saying this is a place we are going to as much as possible leave alone and not make use of if you if you think back to the original concept of the commons those were resources usually in that time terrestrial areas in which anybody could go and put their cattle out to graze uh, anybody could go and create a plot and grow things and the idea was that you needed to have areas that were intensively used this way but also that they needed to recover to be able to provide the goods and services that they were intended for to the people by following them by saying this commons is now closed and we're going to allow it to recover before we start using it again and this follows from the concept of following in agricultural use so in the very most general sense, the idea of marine protected areas, which is a very, in, in terms of human approaches, is, a, is an ancient idea. If you look at marine peoples, at Melanesians and Polynesians who have 
hundred thousand year histories, because remember those places weren't glaciated, right. of occupation of tiny little islets on huge coral reefs in which they had to learn how to use the commons. It was often called the home lagoon uh, in a way that sustained uh, the supply, the only supply of protein. Uh, Seabirds, of course, were also a supply, but the seabirds would not have been there had it not been for the productivity of the reef. And they have a long and well-documented history of protecting sections of the reef from various human activities. I need to say that the purpose in the in the most general sense of a marine protected area, an area in which we regulate human activities to greater or lesser extent with the express purpose of maintaining aspects of that volume of ocean and that area of seabed and area of sea surface that we know are important. Internationally, these areas of importance are generally known as ecologically or biologically significant areas, or simply EBSAs. And we wish them to continue to be there, to exist, because there is the possibility of these places simply ceasing to exist, but also where they continue to function in the way that sustains those things we care about. And those things are not always things that we can sell uh, or things that we can eat. You you know, they are things like sucking up CO2 out of the atmosphere and and pushing oxygen into the atmosphere, for example. That's a very valuable service uh, uh, that we've only recognized really in the last 20 years or so. These also include cultural or religious practices or simply breathing, literally making 50% of the oxygen that we breathe on a daily basis. Collectively, these are called ecosystem services, a service that the ecosystem provides for us completely free of charge. So it is in in one way the most ancient and the absolute simplest way that we can look to continue to have the ocean deliver the goods and services that we care about. It is to allow all those other things in the ocean most of which we would never think of eating, that no one would ever pay us money for, of keeping them alive and doing their thing. So as we've been kind of discussing, some activities do happen in in, in these MPAs and some don't um, or shouldn't. And some are designated as no take, while others do allow some level of removal, generally fishing in this case or the hunting. Does what happens inside the confines depend on the type of MPA or are they all the same in Canada? Do you want to discuss that a little bit? Sure. So now we're moving from the very generalized concept. Why would we take areas of the ocean and start telling people that they can't do stuff or take stuff from there? And that beautifully simple and theoretically and logically impeccable idea becomes exceptionally complicated. And it becomes complicated for three fundamental reasons. The first one is the ocean is not the land. While this might seem obvious, 
there is actually quite a lot to it. When you protect an area of land, you're protecting the ground up to the height of the tallest blade of grass or the tallest tree. It's pretty much two dimensions with a few birds above that height. And what is there, with the exception of some animals, doesn't move around much outside of the confines of that park. In the ocean, you're looking at an area in three dimensions because it can be kilometers deep with animals and organisms spread out from top to bottom. And on top of that, many of those organisms, including eggs and babies, don't really swim. They literally go with the flow. They move with the currents across these vast areas. Protected areas work and have been proven to work well to very well in terrestrial situations. Right. And when I say work, I'm not talking about work to increase the immediate and direct economic benefits to the people. I mean work in the sense that they allow natural ecological processes to proceed. And the difference is that water is a thousand times denser than air. And so even though that patch of protected land and forest and river and lake is connected to all of the industrial and agricultural and human urban uh, dominated areas around by the movement of air, the air really doesn't connect it very strongly. The movement of water that connects, for example, the gully marine protected area uh, on the Scotian shelf to the Gulf Stream and to the Nova Scotia current that flows up, hugs the coast of the Atlantic coast of Nova Scotia, are much more directly and positively connected. So it's got to do with isolation. How well buffered is this protected area from the external influences of what's going on around it? And that's the first major complicating factor right it's really difficult to pick a volume as distinct from an area of the ocean and say okay we're going to draw a line or a curtain it would have to be if it went from the surface to the seabed around this volume of water and we're going to make sure that no bad stuff happens it'll interfere with the ecological processes that we know have to keep happening because things move well and and it, it's incredibly important that they move. It is really yeah. how the ocean works. So that's one, is that you could go to Algonquin Park and you can draw a line, a very firm line with signs. You could even build a fence if you want it uh, or, or, you know, around the Cape Breton Highlands uh, National Park or whatever. And, and you could say none shall pass or only people without guns or only whatever. But it's much, much harder to do that uh, in the ocean. And that comes to the second piece is we're dealing with people and no two people are the same. And certainly no two groups of people are the same. And to make rules that satisfy enough of the people so that those who have the legal power to make rules will keep their jobs and stay in power is extremely difficult. It is a fraught process. This is a really key point here. 
And what Bruce means is that those politicians, those leaders, sometimes get voted out of office when they have to make those hard decisions that'll benefit us all as a society, but seemingly negatively impact industry, at least superficially. And then the third thing, which applies to protected areas of all sorts everywhere in the globe, is the accelerated pace of anthropogenic climate change. Ah, yes, climate change. And along with this comes many other things beyond just temperature, including ocean acidification. And so we can, we can do the immense amount of research and study and thinking and talking to people that is required to pick a really good hunk of the ocean in which seems to be working really well. And then to convince all of the people <laughs> who may engage with it to, to give it a break and to even say, we know that there is excess organic production there that we could harvest and it would have no effect on the numbers of that particular organism that are there. We could take this many tons out a year and there would still be the same amount of tons there at the end because they just die if we don't harvest them. It's to say, yeah, but if we don't take them before they die, then they die and they go down to the bottom and a whole bunch of other things that don't live by eating live things, but live by eating dead things benefit. And all of the nutrients in them, If even if the only thing that benefits is bacteria on the seabed, those nutrients will be reinjected into that system. It is that understanding that we understand why that's important and we agree to forego the direct economic benefit, the direct personal benefit of that for this greater good of a section of the commons, the global commons of the ocean that appears to be functioning well. And then bloody hell, 20 years later, the place that was so great <laughs> is crap because the ocean's three degrees warmer and all the things that were there and doing the job are all gone. Are on, on the way down and out and a whole bunch of new things that have no no business being there except in the last interglacial, you know, 125,000 years ago. Those three things that make it so incredibly difficult to design a good marine protected area. So again, those three things are the ocean is not the land. We're dealing with people and politicians who want to keep their jobs and climate change. And also remember my comment earlier about how few marine protected areas actually are protected in the way that we say, for example, my bank is protected so that my money isn't stolen. Right. Right. My bank has good protection and there are policemen with guns and there are uh, high tech sirens and, you know, there are thick concrete walls, you know, but we can't do that with pieces of nature that are very big on land and we can't do it at all in the ocean. So again, as we mentioned earlier about paper parks and not being able to police them, you might be wondering, what's the point then if it's just keeping out the honest people? And I'd have to say, because it's a start, we need to start somewhere, even if it's not perfect. So I think that it is a very good thing to invest thought and money and time and, and to do adaptive management and to generate thousands of papers and journals and so on 
to classify all the different kinds of protection, all the different kinds of benefits, and to custom design marine protected areas in the best way we possibly can. That is a worthwhile undertaking. It is a business and it's worth doing, but do not lose sight of the fact that we don't control the movement of the water across the boundaries of marine protected areas. We don't yet anyway, except in the negative way, control changing climate. And, and then also, we actually don't control human behavior on the ocean very well. So yes, we can spend a lot of time angsting and talking about, oh, you know, should we allow this kind of fishing or that kind of fishing? Should we allow this group of people or that group of people to or not to do the things that they do there? But the purest form of this is to simply say, this is an area where everything we know that can cause harm is not going to be allowed. And we hope for the best. And we hope for the best given those three facts that it's very difficult to actually force people to behave a certain way. They, it needs to come from their hearts and their heads. They need to choose as individuals to do that. It's very hard to stop bad things from coming into areas we want to protect because of, I mean, let's think of the sea urchin wasting disease. It comes up with eddies off of the Gulf Stream. Right. How do we protect the sea urchins in our marine protected area on the coast of Nova Scotia from that? Well, we don't, okay? We can't. And, and then thirdly, how do we protect them from the fact that everything's changing within living memories of fishermen now who just say, this is not the ocean I started fishing in. It's changed. Now, remember in the history of fishing that we discussed shifting baseline syndrome, the change in perception from generation to generation in what was a big fish or what was considered plentiful. Now, this is not only happening in our lifetimes, but portions of our lifetimes in the span of our careers now. So we need to have a little bit of common sense simplicity in our marine protected area thinking and recognize the best world would be one in which we don't have to have marine protected areas because people know that there are a whole bunch of things that they should not do or that they should do in certain ways in, the, in all of the ocean, not just within this little box and that little box that we've created. And that's what we tried to do for a long time. That's why we have fishery regulations that don't you know, don't focus on one little area. They say, we have a stock of Atlantic salmon and we know the range of them. It's all the way from the top of the, the St. Mary's River in, in Geisborough County to the coast of Iceland. That is the area. And we can't, we can't protect that whole area. What we have to do is look at the life cycle of salmon and make sure that they're protected from egg to dying adult. Right. So I guess just I, uh, briefly, so in, in Atlantic Canada, we've got a few MPAs. Um, you mentioned the gully off Nova Scotia. There's also St. Anne's, which I believe you've done quite a bit of work with, um, St. Anne's Bank, the Laurentian Channel, 
We've got Basin Head and PEI, Musquash Estuary in New Brunswick, Bundesliga American, mm-hmm. Gaspésie, a couple of Newfoundland, um, a few big ones in the Arctic, a few in the Pacific. I don't think there's any in Manitoba or Ontario as part of the Hudson's Bay, but all of the existing MPAs were chosen for different reasons. Before we get to that, can can you tell me the big difference between a shoreline and a blue water MPA? Because that'll help clarify some of the following questions. Sure. So despite what I said, all marine protected areas are not the same, although they have this commonality that I've spoken about. And they get made for a range of purposes, which in the very simplest classification are to protect ecological functions that are felt to be essential. And the other is to protect areas that people really like to use for recreational purposes. And these are not mutually exclusive, but they they often are quite separate. And we have that good example. If you look at the gully and you look at the Musquash estuary, for example, or those are good examples of those extremes. The number of human beings that will ever be to the gully <laughs> can be counted very easily, not, not on a few hands or feet. But And when they, quotes be there, they will only be bobbing about on the surface in a boat. And I can guarantee you that the surface of the ocean there... <laughs> looks the same as everywhere else. Yeah, yeah. And it's too deep to personally experience it. All you can do is send down a a remotely operated camera and look at what you see there. That's it. Whereas the Musquash Estuary is a place which is sort of at the interface. Well, it's an estuary. It's the interface between uh, the the fresh waters of, of the land and the salty waters of the ocean and all the marshes and, and uh, wetlands and dunes and so on in between. And so it's very accessible to people, very important to people, and, and they can experience in many, many different ways, uh, including snorkeling and uh, you know not even having to be a diver, just putting on a mask or even just walking in with a viewer box and in ankle deep water and looking at what's there on the seabed. So the good thing about that is by limiting the ways that people with a big city right next door right. behave within the Musquash estuary, you can also enhance the ability of those critical ecological functions that occur there. For example, the sequestration of carbon in the long-lived root mats of, of seagrass uh, beds, the provision of essential food and habitat for migrating birds. The list goes on and on. Um, It's not that you have denied people access. In fact, I would say the way they've developed that, they've enhanced not only the number of people that can enjoy that estuary, but the quality of the experience they have when they do go to that estuary. Right. But they've done a good to excellent job. And I, I... of limiting the amount of contamination, pollution, you know, physical damage from ATV wheels and so on that is done to uh, the various elements within that that system. In the case of the gully or, the, you know, the one I've been working on, the St. Anne's Bank, which is a lot bigger than the gully, but not as far offshore, but 
still definitely over the horizon. The limitation on exploitation by fisheries is not really the major, you know, the major intervention, if you wish. It was recognizing that that place is very close to where oil and gas development is taking place. Right. And it was really a way of justifying very tight controls on activities associated with that oil and gas that could have downstream effects on the life and the ecological processes within the gully. And so here's a a case where they've really used a remarkable ecological feature, this canyon in the edge of the continental shelf, cut by the flow of glacial meltwater as it ran out to the coastline that was way out there 15,000 years ago. And to say, sort of like the Grand Canyon or something, just say, this is an amazing place. Yeah. Even though nobody can see it or a handful of Jacques Cousteau type people can see it. uh, And even then remotely, um, we recognize it's an amazing place. And here's some evidence where we have these squid populations and whale populations and so on, seabird populations that really hang about that place. And even though it's virtually impossible to enjoy it, we're going to recognize how activities that take place, not just within it, but upstream of it, have the potential to degrade the ecosystem functions and the biodiversity there. And we're going to try as best we can to limit that. I like the St. Anne's Bank one because there's one little pinnacle that sticks up in the St. Anne's Bank that's shallow enough for plain old air-breathing scuba divers to go to. (laughs) And uh, it literally, it's 30 miles offshore. There's no, there's just horizon all around you. It's the same scene as you'd see if you went to the gully, but you can actually put on a scuba tank, fall over the side of your boat, swim down, and you can, you can commune with this, the kelp beds, the same kind of kelp beds you'd see if you were just diving on the coast at, you know, Manadu or something on uh, 30 miles, Lewisburg, 30 miles away. And it's right out there, quotes, you know, in the middle of nowhere on this little pinnacle of rock that that was volcanic rock that was resistant to the glaciers. So I love that because a big problem for MPAs in Canada, not just in Canada, is that it's hard for people to love them the way that they love their national parks. Yeah. And a lot of that has to do with the, by the time you get out to the gully or to St. Anne's Bank on the tour boat, you are so seasick. (laughs) All you can see is vomit. You know, you, you, all you see is green. Um, And, and so how can you love that place? You can only love it in some, so that's another big difference coming to your question of the coastal marine protected area, which really should be called something different, like a coastal protected area rather than a marine protected area, because it's not just about the, the ocean part. Right. You know, the essential is that interface of the land and the ocean, which is not a hard wall, right? So um, I, I sort of like this idea, and I have this 
dream that there could be tour boats. They'd have to be fairly robust, but it's not as long a trip out there as it is to uh, the gully. And then when they get there, they can actually get down amongst the fish and the seaweeds and they can see seascapes and they can say, I've been to the St. Anne's Bank Marine Protected Area, you know, and I saw a wolf fish or I saw something like that with my own eyes, you know. Right. And I think those are so maybe that's why musquash is so, you know, successful in many of, of those because it's successful the way that a, a good park is successful. People go there. They have fun. Visitors uh, love it and they want to protect it. They, yeah. 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 Um, if we kind of go back to the previous question a little bit, and this touches on the marine spatial planning, but how how are the locations actually chosen? Like what what do the areas need to qualify as a marine protected area? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I'm hoping that you have talked to quite a few of the people who who do, you know, marine spatial planning. And let, let's yeah. be clear, I'm a big, you know, just as humans when they overpopulated and overused the land realized they needed to start zoning things to say look this is a residential area you cannot build a scrap metal yeah. processing plant in the middle it's not zoned for that it's zoned for single family residential or whatever right it, it got to the point that the commons of the ocean were being so intensely used that they had to start zoning it. So, so that's called integrated coastal. And it, of course it started in the coastal zone, um, but it's integrated coastal zone management. And then of course, nations were always involved because of military and because of trade. And so in really quite an independent process through the United Nations law of the sea, they zoned the exclusive economic zones and that, that sort of thing. But when you get, so, so that's in a way, I'm not saying it's certainly not easy, but you can see, okay, this is a place that has oil and gas. Oil and gas needs certain kinds of human activities, and it needs to have other things not taking place there. So we will zone this place as an oil and gas field, just the way we do on land or something like that. Right. So that that makes sense. And this is an important place for ferry boats to take people from one side of the harbor to the other. So we're going to zone that as a a ferry transit lane and nobody can anchor there and no one can build something in the way there because so you see that makes sense but when you get to mixing this article of faith we've got to do something and given the complexities and those three factors i talked about the best thing to do is just grab some hunks of ocean and try to give them some protection and see what happens and hope for the best that doesn't fit very well into this. And so we've concocted all these schemes for how you pick these areas. I can tell you right now, the main way they're picked in Canada is to have this, the ecologists go in and look purely at the non-human components of the ecosystems. Right. And we could debate the point about whether humans are ever a component of a marine ecosystem, but not now and here. Um, and they will come up with a, with quite defensible uh, statements that say the number of species per unit area, uh, both in, or, or, you know, that's the simplest measure of diversity, or the number of different animal and plant phyla, not species, but the broad diversity in this area is the highest 
within a thousand kilometers. And so this is a biodiversity hotspot. So we like, we, we may not know exactly why, but we do know that lots of different ways of living is good for adaptation. It's, it is the way that life thrives. So when we find places where there's a lot of different kinds of life, protect that. If you want to, if you want to draw a line on a map, go and find a biodiversity hotspot and try to protect it. Right. So that's sort of the pure approach. But then comes the negotiation <laughs> with all of the human interests. And you've got guys quite legitimately who have papers that can prove I and my father and my grandfather have earned a living off halibut in that place for 150 years. And if I'm sure that if you're willing to accept um, less, you know, formal things and records of landings and latitudes and longitudes and ships logbooks, you could probably go back much, much further to prove the importance of the extraction of things or the various kinds of use of this area to others. And, and then you can talk to the oil and gas people who say, oh, well, you know, we did seismic over there back in the 70s. There, there's, there's a good possibility there's gas under there. And, you know, it goes like that. And so then you, you get this thing where the MPA becomes the place that the fewest number of Canadians who have any political, economic, or ethical power say, we don't care about that place. Sure. Tell us not to go there because we don't go there anyway. We don't care. Wow. That's pretty powerful. That we have trouble protecting the places that need it the most, just in case you needed another reason to make your voice heard. So, so that's, that's a big part. And I really know this both from my time, you know, when Australia was carving up and zoning the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park. Right. But also, I was on the St. Anne's Bank Advisory Committee, uh, you know, since the very first, very first time that DFO identified it as an EBSA, you know, a, a ecologically and biologically significant area, right? That That first process I described to you. And so now what was a huge box has become this thing that looks like a jigsaw puzzle with all kinds of little cutouts on it and to recognize, oh, well, you know, that, that you can't stop us from fishing there. That's an important place. No, <laughs> right. you, you can't say, are you, you know what I mean? And then the other driver, of course, is coming back to this thing I said about in the face of ignorance, the safest thing to do in terms of conservation is to just take vast swaths of oceans and stop bad stuff from happening. Right. Uh, this has become a global, you know, the Convention on Biodiversity, the, the Sustainable Development Goals. This is a global focus. And countries are getting or, or losing brownie points for meeting what percentage of your ocean is protected. And so we have our prime minister saying it's going to be you know, 20% by 2020 or whatever it's going to be, right? Now, we didn't get a chance to talk about Canada's commitment, so I'll mention it briefly. Currently, Canada has somewhere around 13 to 14% of its EEZ, our exclusive economic zone protected. And we've committed to 25% by 2025. 
That's four years from now. And then 30% of our ocean protected within our waters by the year 2030. So now the reason you have all this fancy stuff, but in the end it becomes a, a brutal sort of a, a calculus of where can we get the most number of square kilometers that we can say according to one, and you mentioned there are the, the best established is the IU International Union for the Conservation of Nature has seven categories of, of protected areas, right? Not just marine, and they range from just simply, uh, there's one really bad thing that typically happens there like mining, and now it can't. Everything else can happen, but no things, to something where nobody can set foot or boat in that place without a permit. You know, that's sort of the extreme, right, of the seven levels. But when it gets into this international calculus and this bidding war of who is the most area protected of the ocean and within their exclusive economic zones, no one's talking about the wide ocean much. Right. Then all it has to do is meet one of those protected criteria and they can add it to their tally, you know, and then, oh, well, we, you know, we got there. So I'm cynical about that, but I'm not dead against it. You know, a vast area that has some level of protection and actually appears on maps is a beginning. I absolutely love this comment because, as I mentioned, we need to start somewhere. If we wait until everything's perfect and everybody's happy, we'll never get there. Um, I, I have a really interesting example here in uh, in Cape Breton, right. you know, where I'm working now, is that we have an inland sea here. 280 meters deep, which is deeper than the edge of the Scotian shelf. You know, you got to go off the edge to find that called the Bredore Lake. And um, uh, a group of, of foresighted people and including uh, a guy, a, a fisherman named Kevin Squires, who uh, actually when I was the director of the Marine Affairs Program at Dal, he he was a student uh, in the program and he, he did his thesis on the idea of the Bredore Lake being declared a marine protected area. And for any number of reasons, that hasn't happened. I'm not saying it never can, but it hasn't. And I would say it's unlikely to. But that got me engaged with Kevin and, and a bunch of others in the idea of it being declared a under UNESCO's Man in the Biosphere program. And so there are some 700 biosphere reserves around the world. And the Bredore Lake was Canada's 16th, and it was declared a decade ago. Here's what I'm saying. That, and notice that it has the word reserve in it. And usually when you think of reserve, uh, like the such and such nature reserve, you sort of say, hey, that's a high level of protection. This is reserved for nature. Right. And that means that humans must tread very lightly or maybe not tread at all. But the definition of the UNESCO Man and the Biosphere Reserve Program has for biosphere reserves is that this is an ecosystem. And it's interesting, they require an ecosystem boundary. In the case of the Bredore Lake, it's not the shoreline of the lake. The Biosphere Reserve is actually 3,600 square kilometers because it includes the watershed of the lake. Or as the as the Mi'kmaq describe it, Biduba, which is 
uh, roughly that to which all waters flow. And so it's that line where if the rain fell on the hills behind Wacogama, it wouldn't run down to the Gulf of St. Lawrence. It would run down into the Bredore Lake. And that's where that line is. Right. So within that biosphere reserve, all it says is this is a place where the people of this ecosystem, and it explicitly recognizes human beings as part of nature and part of functioning healthy ecosystems, are striving to live in harmony with nature. Interestingly, living in harmony with nature is in essence the goal of the CBD, the Convention on Biological Diversity. Hopefully we can talk about that in the future. That's the essence of it, right? It's about human intent. And it's quite profound because it recognizes that until you have the power to literally tell people, hey, you can't go there. And if you do, we'll catch you and you will be punished. So you won't be going there again um, or doing this or that there. Right. Which is, as I say, very hard to do. Even on land, it's hard to do. Until we do that, the only hope we have for ecosystems to remain intact and functional is for humans to make individual choices not to chuck their garbage off the side of the boat, not to chintz on the sewage treatment uh, system for their new cottage, not to bulldoze the barachois ponds because they smell bad, those kinds of things, right? All of those things are allowed to be done or can be got away with legally, but they shouldn't be done. And in a biosphere reserve, the focus is on getting individuals to make the right choices. And that to me is a more practical approach to protection, but not one that you can sort of instantly do and tick the box, right? So I, I think we in Canada, We've always been strong in the implementation of protected areas, but we've been weak on the policy. And when I say weak, I mean that we really have not developed the policy in a way that even our politicians understand it. <laughs> so when I talk to politicians, they're very confused and indeed a bit threatened by the idea of a UNESCO man in the biosphere reserve. Right. Uh, and when I talk to the fishermen, they definitely are threatened by an Oceans Act marine protected area. So, so why why are people so dead against dead set against it? Like whether that's the fishers or the politicians, what's the what's the big misunderstanding? Some some people certainly are. Um, I didn't so much say dead set against. I, I, <laughs> I, I, there are there there are some. What I said was threatened. Yeah, and, sorry. I'm I'm thinking there's some people that they have the signs plastered on yeah. along the side of the road yeah. so no mpas <laughs> here blah blah blah. not my backyard yeah oh so there now we're getting to the real nitty-gritty so you're referring to what's been going on down in one of the most wonderful parts of nova scotia although they're they're all wonderful but that coast in guysborough county i mean that's the most amazing place and and in in many ways it is the least well the population density is really low and um you know it's it's just so bifurcated all these little in the wine harbor and all these it's it's amazing um certainly it's like the south coast of cuba it it's it's lightly po populated and it is ecologically wonderfully endowed and so 
so here this comes back to my comment uh, you know really about uh policy you can't implement marine protected areas if you don't have a clear and well-developed policy right and you know the the problem we have is that policy has not been explained and developed in a way that is understandable to those and so what they feel and what they hear is oh something i've been doing all my life i'm not going to be able to do it now right or if they're politicians i'm going to have to tell people they can't do something <laughs> uh and they're not going to vote for me again uh, right so you know that, so there's a lot of misunderstanding yeah there, there is a lot of misunderstanding some of it is willfully usually not very excusable in our society where we we do have disposable income we do have leisure time there's there's not really much excuse for willful ignorance uh, right. but there there also is not much excuse for a piece of legislation the oceans act that 20 years after it was established or 25 years after it was established the majority of canadians don't even know it exists and don't understand what policies it reflects we're gonna have to chat about this one another time but very briefly it's canada's marine protection law that mandates the minister of fisheries and oceans and the canadian coast guard to develop a national ocean strategy and a national system of marine protected areas because an, an act of parliament must be based on a a policy which a policy is essentially a statement of ambition what what is it what is our policy on this what 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 is our stance on this and and the stance is we want a healthy and productive ocean that's the stance i think that's a pretty good policy a pretty good stance to have on our ocean one that can continue to provide for us and our children for generations to come so if you have that policy and you're going to implement it through the oceans act why is it that 25 years later we have so much aggressive misunderstanding and confusion and it's because the implementation has has not been good uh, on this policy how are we going to get there i mean is it more community consultation or or is it better consultation better communication i think i think all of those, but I think the best thing is to wait for a bunch of people to die, and that's <laughs> happening pretty quickly. You know, um, you know, I think there there are there are a cohort. So so yes, we need to be pushing the dinosaur. You know, the people whose whole lives came in a time in in which the mindset of the relationship between human beings and the rest of the natural world, because I do know that humans are part of nature um but not it's one thing to say i know that it's another thing to act yeah. that right so those people just need to shuffle off into the old folks homes and so on and stop being influencers and then we may need to make sure that the generation that's coming through now and you know i have three sons and i know where they are in this and i'm happy with where they are they are in this and it's not just because of me it's you know uh, because of our school system and our newspapers and so on but uh perhaps th they do have a bit of an advantage because of me in in this particular this particular field but oh i'm sure they do 
And all our children can have that advantage if we continue to talk to them about the natural world and our influence on it. So we need to have this in our curriculum. Like in Nova Scotia, we have the Ocean's Eleven. I, I think I think it's also like about 20. Everyone sees it as a, a bird course and and just, you know, it could be so much and it is so little. Oh, that's sad. Uh you know, with, with due respect to our provincial department of education, it just it gets such a low priority. I really hope that someone from the department of education or even teachers are listening here. And if you are, check out either the Canadian Network for Ocean Education or the Canadian Ocean Literacy Coalition for a place to start. That course could be just huge if if it was given, uh, and and it could be a place where. The Oceans Act and the Fisheries Act could be introduced and explained as policy. Right. I'm not telling you're going to get grade 10, grade 11 students to read these acts. I'm saying you get them to just the way that we have the, the, the you know, the justice, you know, that we teach people that all, all people are, all humans are equal in front of the law and those kinds of things. We teach policy in our schools. Why are we not teaching ocean policy in our schools? It's important now. It wasn't important when the oceans were healthy in spite of us. Yeah. And then the other one is, having said all of the things I said, the fact is that the St. Anne's Bank Marine Protected Area has been established. The fishermen were definitely part of that negotiation. The government proved that they were willing to listen and accommodate fishermen's concerns and interests there and there was a compromise reached there will always be debate uh, about you know how good the compromise was but i notice and and that's fine you know that's how humans i mean (laughs) you know that's we, we not only do we expect that but but we value that um because the fact is we barely know what we're doing these are articles of faith. The important thing is we are trying to develop MPAs and we're trying to have it be a collaborative pro- process that involves those who are both directly and indirectly affected right. by those uh, uh, developments or those uh, legislative uh, fiats. Uh, and finally, I, I noticed that a significant and influential group of the main users of the St. Anne's Bank Marine Protected Area, namely fishermen, are participating in research projects. Okay. They are putting cameras on their gear. They're actually going out and helping people like me get to the place for for no harvest benefit to them, but because they see, in some sense, value in science being done there. Right. Many of those fishermen have children and you know their children are asking them questions. How do, how do you know how much fish you you can kill and you're always complaining about how you know the catch is going down. Why is it going down? And you know the fishermen are thinking about that and and well they would never well no I shouldn't should never say never they they might not admit it in a newspaper in public that well part of the reason it's going down is because of overfishing of course not them but you know some 
Uh, and part of the reason it's going down is is because of climate change and things that are beyond their control or or letting foreign fishers from Spain come in or something. So there are. But but just to have fishermen thinking, uh, you know, it is possible that we might be taking more than the ocean has to give us. So maybe we should back off a bit and try fishing some other things. So I, I see a generational change. Some of those people that need to move on are fishermen. Right. Some of them that need to move on are scientists who have had a, you know, a very negative uh, view uh, and, a, and a hypercritical view uh, about marine protected areas. I am a supporter of um, the concept, uh, as you will have heard in the things I said in the beginning of this interval view of marine protected areas. And I am also, uh, when I say supporter, I mean, I believe in it. I, I genuinely believe in it, even though I can give you any number of cases, including a little bit of my own work, where we have tried to show a benefit to the fishery of creating marine protected areas. And it hasn't, it's not there. And, and the reasons for that are so many and complicated, but in a nutshell, if most of the fish you catch stay in one place for their lives and you can protect an area big enough to allow a lot of those fish to grow old and the amount of eggs produced by fish, you know, goes up exponentially with the size of the fish. It's not just a linear thing, right? So if you can allow in protected areas, those fish to grow old and produce millions of eggs, fish eggs drift in the currents outside and that's the spillover thing and so on. So it's very hard to show those work, but in those places where people have been lucky, but also designed really good experiments and, uh, and done the hard field work, there is no question that spillover benefits to fisheries from marine protected areas have absolutely happened and can happen. Now, G.J. Edgar published in the Journal of Nature that for MPAs to be effective, there should be no take, they should be enforced, we talked about this earlier, they should be old, at least 10 years old, large, at least 100 kilometers squared, and they should be isolated. Now, each MPA will have its own unique set of conservation objectives and ultimately will be specifically designed to meet those objectives. As you move to species in which the animals are highly migratory and move all over the place and only spend part of their lives at different, unless you can find the place at some bottleneck in the population, like NASA grouper, they're they're widely dispersed, but when they spawn, they all go to the same place. And you can find those places in, in the Belize Barrier Reef and protect them. Um, that, that's been shown, proven to work, right. to enhance fishery yields of NASA grouper outside, to increase the abundance. There's absolutely no question. But when you move to things like herring and uh, you know most of the species that we have uh, – in, in temperate and, and subboreal oceans, much, much harder to show. My point of that is that that's where the article of faith comes in is we still know that there will be real but unmeasurable, 
at least with our current capabilities and budgets, benefits to fisheries. And we should not let the criteria that it's not an effective MPA if it is not enhancing adjacent fisheries, that is only one of the criteria. And the fact that it's very difficult to prove it in our the kinds of situations we live with highly dynamic movements of water and widely dispersed migrating stocks of fish um, doesn't mean that the benefits are not there. So, you know, I said in the beginning, MPAs are really good in theory, but they're much less obviously good in practice. Because it's so hard to measure, tangibly measure. Right. It, 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 exactly. And, and also to say, this is a maturation. MPAs are not your primary fishery management tool. Nor are they intended to be. Now remember, there's more to MPAs than just fisheries. But along with that, MPAs can support fisheries management activities, but they are not designed to fulfill them. I spent three years working in the Caribbean with, with the old CARICOM country fishery departments on implementing the idea of strategic, um, they weren't called MPAs, but they were a type of fishery reserves which sought to identify these places where protection from fishing could actually lead to more fish being caught. And that is one reason to develop an MPA, and it's a legitimate one. What we found there was that the, the spin-off benefits to tourism, to biodiversity, to ecosystem services were more significant than the benefits to the fishery. And that's where the problem comes because we're like asking fishermen to take a hit for the benefit of the rest of us. Right. But fishermen are used to that. <laughs> now, here's an interesting tidbit. In Canada, fishers are not compensated for conservation, and it's traditionally been done through negotiations. So this, in essence, limits where we can put our MPAs, usually where it impacts the least amount of people and not necessarily where it should go. Now, conversely, countries such as New Zealand have spent billions on buybacks, essentially buying the rights to fish in particular areas, thus allowing the MPA to be placed where they should go from an ecological standpoint. We ask them to increase their, their minimum catch, uh, uh, their minimum, you know, the, what, what's the smallest animal you can catch? That, that's always creepy up in lobsters. We ask them to take that female lobster not one that has eggs on it but just a female lobster that you know and in and which will bring top dollar if it's in good shape and so on a, a good three pound female two and a half pound female to notch the tail and put it back and they're doing that and they're they they're not going to catch that lobster again they've just put 20 bucks back in the ocean and they are doing it for the common good right they may think of it as I may not catch that one again, but Buddy will, or I will catch the babies that that lobster is able to produce because I didn't kill it now and left it back in the ocean. So they might think of it selfishly like that, but they are also contributing to 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 you know that common good. So um, I think it's important not to get too. We're so fishery commercial fishery oriented here. 
it's such a big part of our Atlantic Canadian economy. Uh, you mean look at Newfoundland and so on. It's so important. We we tend to confuse that with all those other 131 benefits that are listed in Jorge's paper, you know, yeah. um, of MPAs. If anyone is interested, that paper was called A New Typology of Benefits Derived from Marine Protected Areas by Jorge Angulo Valdez and Bruce Hatcher, a 2010 article in the Journal of Marine Policy. And, you know, I think rather than berating fishermen for being opposed to uh, MPAs in many cases, we should be, um, you know, championing championing those who participate and or who at least just even though they hate them respect their laws right uh you know um as heroes who who have been well maybe not quite heroes but of people who have been willing to make personal sacrifice for the greater good exactly well thank you so much for all your time to talk about yeah, yeah. today <laughs> Yeah, that was fun. I uh, You can see it's a passion for me. And uh, I, I think you're doing a wonderful thing here. Now, one of the interesting things I want to end on that was mentioned to me when preparing for this episode is that a lot of people think that MPAs or protected areas in general, whether land or marine, will really resonate with Indigenous peoples. But in reality, when thinking about Netaglimp, which I've mentioned a few times, with Netaglimp, we don't need MPAs. We shouldn't need conservation areas at all because everything has conservation built in. Another way of looking at it is that in the indigenous mindset, everything is already a protected area. Now, unfortunately, we don't all think with future generations in mind. Now, that's not to say that indigenous peoples don't alter habitats and drive down populations of organisms or other animals, and that they bear the responsibility for protecting wildlife. But in general, the concept of conservation appears to be more embedded in Indigenous traditions compared to Western cultures. Well, there we have it. That concludes our episode for today. If you have any questions or you want more information on marine protected areas, please feel free to contact me. Until next time, Lalio. Injured anchoring and lying Injured Executive producer for the Utan, our Living Ocean series are Roger Hunka and Vanessa Mitchell, with the episodes produced by the Maritime Aboriginal People's Council. Narrative and editing by your host, Brian Martin. Today's special guest was Dr. Bruce Hatcher. The song Broken Read in English, written by George Edward Chevry, performed by Cloland Johnson, translated and performed in Mi'kmaq by Elder Catherine Sorby. Production support provided by the Government of Canada, specifically Transport Canada's Indigenous and Local Communities Engagement and Partnership Program, through Canada's Ocean Protection Plan. All rights reserved. It's a healthy wind coming to heal your water world. Injured well, can you hear the eagle cry high above the storm?